Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode, I have a conversation with Matt Carden. We discuss Alan Watts' book, Beyond Theology, The Art of Godmanship. We explore various themes, including the creator-creature distinction, the philosophy of non-duality, scientism, and spiritual disciplines that help us become more accident-prone to receiving divine grace. Matt Carden is a writer and freelance editor living in North Central Arkansas. With a PhD in leadership and a master's degree in religious studies, he writes frequently about the intersection of religion, horror, art, and creativity. He is also vice president of academic affairs at North Arkansas College. His books include the weird and cosmic horror fiction collections. He's been a panelist, panel chair, and reader at the World Fantasy Convention, the World Horror Convention, MythosCon, and more. In 2004, he was invited panelist at Baylor University's Faith and Film Symposium. He's been a guest on Expanding Mind, Weird Studies, Darkness Radio, The Man Cal Muller Show, This Is Horror, and many other radio shows and podcasts. He is a longtime pianist with an especially extensive background in church music. Former careers include professor of English and religion, dissertation editor for doctoral students, high school teacher, piano salesman, college writing center instructor, corporate communications specialist, media producer for a large state university, and video director for country and pop music legend Glenn Campbell. 
If you're interested in learning more about Matt, please check out his website at mattcarden.com or you can go to his blog, The Teeming Brain, T-E-E-M-I-N-G, brain.com, or you can check him out on Twitter, twitter.com underscore Matt Carden. Guys, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. It was a blast to record. I learned a bunch. I'm taking home a lot of interesting information that I'm going to utilize in my own philosophical and spiritual practices. I hope you do as well. And as always, guys, remember, continue the conversation. Thank you so much for being open to coming on Therapy for Guys, my podcast, uh, to have a discussion about this amazing book, Alan Watts, Beyond Theology. I, I really appreciate you being a guest. Thanks for having me here, Kike. I'm glad to be able to have this conversation with you. Yeah. So, Matt, I, I know you don't know this, but, um, you know, I guess many years now at this point, I was going through my own sort of dark night of the soul you know, a career ending, relationships changing, starting my own sort of deep depth psychological therapy on my own soul. And one of the things that I discovered during that time was sort of like the horror genre. And I got connected to Thomas Ligotti. And, and mm-hmm. with him, I, I found your name. And I know that I would read some of your blog entries and I think even a part of one of your books and it really fed my soul. So it's existentially meaningful for me to have you on the podcast because whether you knew it or not, you had kind of an impact on my psyche and, and who I've become. So it's it's really nice to have you. No, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. I know uh, I can appreciate that especially because I've had the experience over the years um, of uh, coming into some contact with people and, and being uh, colleagues with people and so on in the writing and publishing that uh, I kind of I had the same relationship with previously that you talked about having read my work through finding Tom's work, you know, and then reading my books. It's like I, I had read these people, and uh, then to actually find myself interacting with them in a, in a, a, on the level of colleagues uh, was pretty special. So I appreciate your saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we kind of jump into you know discussing beyond theology, would you mind giving my listeners just kind of a few details about you? kind of who you are, what you're up to, what you do, and then maybe we can jump into the conversation. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I, uh, if, you, if you go by the, 
the kind of thing that one might put on a CV, which right. uh, having, been, having been employed in uh, higher education since 2008, I do have a CV, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, if, I, if I were to put things on there in that vein, I would say something like, um, I'm presently um, vice president of a community college. And uh, prior to that, um, I was a college faculty and also I worked in a college writing center and I taught uh, composition and literature and uh, world religion classes and got to make up interesting classes to teach like uh, uh, religion and the supernatural in literature. And uh, oh, that's so that, cool. <laughs> thank you. Before that, I taught, uh, taught high school English. And then before that, I worked in uh, video and, and uh, media production. That was my original career. Um, I worked in uh, Branson, Missouri in the shows, you know, doing uh, camera work and then being a video director for one of the big stars who was there. Oh, wow. Um, I have a PhD in leadership studies, a master's degree in religious studies and a bachelor's degree in communication. And um, alongside that career, I've also since the late 1990s been a a writer uh, focusing largely initially in the areas of uh, supernatural horror fiction and uh, what's uh, called weird fiction. And then increasingly, I've had an editorial and an independent scholar role the past few years. Mm-hmm. So I've created encyclopedias of uh, the supernatural, the, the history of supernatural and horror literature, uh, an encyclopedia of the paranormal, an encyclopedia of mummies, all for a big academic company. And uh, outside of that, I'm married and and uh, have a grown son and have a couple of grandkids. And so those are like your, like you say, those are... The, the, the marriage and all that maybe goes beyond the CV, but those are just basic facts. You yeah, know, I like basic. it. Man, you look way too young to be a grandfather, I just got to say. Well, thank you. I uh, <laughs> I don't know. I I've, uh, I've was I liked it when Eckhart Tolle some years ago pointed out that uh, age was traditionally venerated in societies, you know, and the signs of age like gray hair and wrinkles and so on might have been perceived as the outward signs of the increasing wisdom and value to the community that comes because of that. So mm. I don't know if it's a good thing or not if I don't... <laughs> look like that for for me i've been told that i look young even though i'm almost 37 and it plays to my favor at this point because i think it helps me connect with some of the teenage clients that i see so sure uh but i but i feel like i'm old enough to have some wisdom so parents appreciate that so i'm going to use it as long as i can (laughs) yep i get that so i wanted to start by you know kind of asking you if you could sort of just give almost a, a thesis statement of the book or, or the thing that you really got out of it that connects with who you are, connects with your story, and could be just a launching pad for, for a fruitful conversation together. Sure, sure. I'll do it, I'll do it in, the, in, the, in a specific order. I'll, I'll give what I think is the thesis statement of the book. It might take me two sentences to do it, and that's sure. okay. As I use my students, you can have a multi-sentence thesis when you're yeah. writing an essay. And then I'll mention the maybe the launch point for why what uh, Watts does in this book um, is of personal uh, spiritual importance to me and intellectual importance. Mm. As far as his, his statement in Beyond Theology, I think it would be accurate to say um, it is that um, religions can be understood and uh, additional light can be shed on religions by understanding them within the context of each other. And that when you uh, specifically look at Christianity, and number one, examine 
the um, traditional mainstream Orthodox Christian claims to uh, exclusivity, that the historical Jesus of Nazareth was the one and only Son of God, uh, and that Christian truth is exclusively true. When you when you take that Christianity and read it in the context of a non-dual religious and spiritual understanding such as Hinduism, brand new vistas of understanding emerge, and one can appreciate Christianity uh, in a new way, and also in what would be especially a new way for the people who who are self-identified Christians, because mm. it would blow open uh, their understanding of what this is all about, and the exclusive claims of Christianity and the way that it forms a specific ego identity for adherence of it becomes revealed as quite an interesting game that is being played by the absolute, the one self with itself. Mm. You've read the book. What do you think? Do you think that does justice to it right I, there? I think it does it beautifully. Yeah. And, and I can't wait to unpack some of those elements. There's, there's some good stuff in there. All right. Thank you. As far as my uh, particular attraction to this book and its meaning for me, yeah. it's meaningful to me because I read it for the first time in 2019. So okay. as we're recording this three years ago. You know, and um, actually, you know what? I may have lied. I think it was 20. It may have been 2020. You know how the uh, time warp of COVID since 2020. Oh, yeah. No, kind of blends everything together. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was either 2019 or 20, although I had owned it for years. Okay. And the reason I had owned it for years was related to the fact that Watts uh, has been since uh, I was in late high school and early college one of the most influential writers on spiritual and philosophical and intellectual matters. I love that. For me. So when you add in the fact that I was raised in a, um, in a very conservative evangelical Protestant Christian tradition in rural America, uh, Midwestern rural America, and that when I started to reach the age where I was self-aware of my, uh, religious upbringing and began to question it and try to come to terms with it and see what else I might think. Watts was one of my very early guides. And so I started with his book that with, this is the one most people seem to start with titled the book okay. subtitled on the taboo against knowing who you are. And then I made my way through almost his complete works after that. And I have had a copy. I've owned a copy of beyond theology for, I don't remember how many years now, maybe 25, wow. but for some reason I never got around to reading it. And Right at the beginning or right after the start of COVID, I finally read it. So with Watts being such a foundational influence on my adult uh, understanding and thinking and my, my intellectual maturation and so on, and also with this book being specifically uh, about a, a reinterpretation um, of Christianity, which he's, he'd broached in other books, but not in this way, mm. uh, it really was meaningful to me when I read it. It kind of brought together a bunch of strands that had been uh, affecting me and defining me over the course of a lifetime. Oh, I love that, Matt. You know, when we kind of first started communicating about this episode, I, I came to you and said that I wanted you to help me understand kind of this non-dual approach to Christianity. And you you kind of sent back several texts, several authors that we could engage with. And Alan Watts, I think, was the first one. And I, I felt drawn to him because he's one of those guys that I've heard a lot about. Um, I've seen some of his videos but I'd never sat down and actually read one of his books. I was like, it's time for me to sit down and actually read what he had to say. And I'm glad that I did. I'm glad you did too. And it's interesting that you started with this book, not just because this is 
the most recent book, you know, that I read by him. Uh, sure. But, um, but also just because most people don't start with this one, it was one of his later books. And uh, in a way, I think it encapsulates many of his themes. So I think your launch point, Alan Watts, um, especially from what I understand of where you, where you were coming from and your thinking and your journey, I think it was particularly serendipitous mm. for you as well. Mm. I like that. You know, n- not that we want to get lost in the weeds. I wonder if you could just provide a little bit of a biographical sketch or, or uh, not even biographical, just maybe idea sketch around Watts's writing and thinking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to introduce it's him. It's funny. You're going to catch me looking up something as we're talking right no, now. I want to get fine. his birth year right. Um, but uh, Watts is, as you know, he, he is, because you you said you'd, you'd heard all about him, you know, and then watched some of his videos yes. uh, before reading, which is a testament to how there's been this Alan Watts renaissance in the past 15, 20 years. Um, here's the date I was looking for. He was born in 1915 okay. uh, in the UK in Chislehurst, and he died in the United States in 1973. So 1915 to 1973. And the thing to understand about Watts is that um, as a very young man, he became, um, I think he was raised in church. I've read his autobiography titled In My Own Way, and I'm going to forget some details. But he was raised in church and then became voraciously interested and also showed great intellectual precocity when it came to uh, religion and philosophical and spiritual matters. And really, at a really, really young age, he got involved with um, the Buddhist movement, the interest among um, English uh people in English philosophers and spiritually minded people in Buddhism. Wow. And I think he would, it was, it was incredibly, he was incredibly young when he wrote his first book, which was basically just based on things that he had read, but he was involved with uh, like the Buddhist society the Buddhist lodge. I forget what you call it, where a bunch of influential thinkers were involved. And it was like in his early twenties, like 21, 22, 23, something like that. He published his first book about Buddhism. And then the interesting to, to zoom way out to 30,000 feet, the really interesting thing is that he, he um, kind of became a specialist in understanding Zen. Okay. He wrote early on a book titled The Way of Zen, which is one of the three or four books whose titles he's most known for and most associated with. Yeah, I think I've seen and, that one. Uh, yep. And he became a, a member of the Christian clergy. He, he was actually, uh, was it an Episcopal priest, I believe? He was, uh, I, I don't recall if he was clergy in... Uh, England first, but then he moved to the United States in the mid-century, and he was involved in that whole flux and confluence of massive um, spiritual and philosophical ferment and foment in the mid-20th century. So, I mean, he was moving in circles with people like um, Aldous Huxley, you know, and when he came to the United States, he got involved with like Timothy Leary and Houston Smith, and so he was part of the consciousness revolution, and he became best known as someone who was an interpreter of Eastern religion, and especially Zen and also uh, Advaita Vedanta Hinduism, okay. to uh, a broad popular audience. And then his his reputation became associated with the British and American counterculture. So he came to the U.S., and for a while at Northwestern University, he was actually a Christian clergyman and wrote a few books where he was engaging in the perennial tradition. You know, uh, he, he was oh, yeah. explaining how Christianity is part of the perennial um universal movement of all where we're all religions or expressions of the same thing kind of tuned out of that after a while and left the church as mm-hmm. well. He had very um, libertine instincts and he loved food and he loved lots of women and so on. And this didn't all go so well together with being a formal, you know, Christian pastor or priest. Right. 
So he ended up being a figurehead of the counterculture into his into the early 1970s, the 60s and 70s, and kind of the period everyone is listening to those YouTube uh, recordings of his yeah. lectures and reading the books about today. Those came from that 1960s, 70s period where he became what Theodore Rozak, another towering figure in the counterculture, who in fact coined the term counterculture for that. Oh, wow. Uh, he became, Watts became what uh, Rozak referred to as a spiritual entertainer. Mm. And Rozak even, I mean, Watts himself even referred to himself as that. He would give lectures and talks and write books and so on that some people of a particularly serious scholarly event would say, well, that's just a popularization. He's just making people feel good. But he was walking this interesting line where you've heard he talks wonderfully. Oh, yeah. He's, he's incredible. And, and both his delivery in, in terms of intonation and rhetoric and so on, and also just the words, you can transcribe them as his son, Mark Watts, has been doing for years now with recordings and making books. And you barely have to edit them. It's as if he's speaking in beautifully elegant sentences and wow. paragraphs. And they can generate for many people the sense that they actually are having spiritual realizations. And I'll stop with kind of a long-winded uh, comment here, but I will point out some people don't think that he really had much spiritual depth or awakening himself. Uh, none other than Ken Wilber. Maybe you're mm. familiar with Ken Wilber. Oh, yeah. He's uh, the, the founder of what's known as integral psychology and a major figure in transpersonal psychology and so on. Yes. Uh, tight. Um, he, he, what, what interested him and he's become a Titanic writer himself. Uh, the, one of the first things that influenced him in terms of style and desire to be a writer was reading Alan Watts. And I did read, wow. I think it was in Wilbur's, uh, one of the essays in Wilbur's book, Eye to Eye, a few years back, that in his own uh, mature thinking, Wilbur thought that Watts was more smoke than fire. And he said something along the lines of, nobody wrote like Alan. Mm. Absolutely nobody. However, that's all it was. It was just words. I don't happen to agree, but there is that school of thought that exists about Alan Watts, along with people who think that he was pretty much a bodhisattva. Okay. So there's there is a beginning to Alan Watts. He died suddenly in 1973, went to sleep, didn't wake up, and uh, died too early, in my opinion. Wow. Man, I really appreciate that sketch. That's super helpful to, I think, set the context for our conversation. Now, I know when we were, again, kind of discussing where we would start, you had a great idea to maybe just bring up some of the aspects of our own theological tradition that the book maybe helps us unpack and kind of think about differently. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, the one place that I wanted to start was I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but sort of fell into that tradition as an early adult. And it was uh, kind of the conservative, reformed strand of American Christianity And one of the things that was very important to them was this sharp metaphysical distinction between God and humanity. I I think they would refer Mm -hmm. to it as the creator-creature distinction. Mm -hmm. And um, I I think in some ways that's diametrically opposed to sort of a non-dual approach to things. So I kind of wanted to see where you would go with that, that comment. Well, I grew up in a tradition that was that that had the same idea, although it didn't, it, it did and didn't emphasize it as much as yours would have. Okay, um, you know the Reformed tradition, obviously, um, is uh, the Calvinist tradition, right? And one of the, and one of the, if not the primary uh, aspect or characteristic uh, or doctrine in uh, Calvinist theology is the absolute transcendence 
of God, the absolute aloofness, the absolute separateness of God from the creation, as you said, the the, the creator-creature distinction. That actually holds true in the tradition that I grew up in. It's just not one of those immediately foregrounded things when, sure. when you begin to think what, what it's about. Also, a difference between yours and mine is I grew up in an evangelical tradition that was part of the is the independent Christian church, and it was part of the um, 18th and 19th century restoration. Movement. Okay, is that the Stone Campbell? So, it, absolutely Stone Campbell. That is exactly what it is. You know, you have different Christian churches these days. You have the Christian church disciples of Christ, and people see them around, and you see the uh, the symbol on the sign outside. I think it's a chalice, a chalice. cross on it. Yeah. That is that is comes from the same tradition, but there was a divergence in the early 20th century where— the disciples of Christ are very theologically and socially liberal, and uh, the tradition that I'm part of was the conservative split. So I grew up in the first Christian church in my town, but not first Christian church, disciples of Christ. Very small town, like 1,500 people in southwest Missouri in the Ozarks, and it was the first Christian church in town. And I and I didn't, you know, I didn't I didn't question it. As I say, it wasn't until I got into junior high and high school that, I, like anybody, I got the a bit of self-awareness and started to go, well, maybe everything isn't just exactly like this. Right. Just you accept the world as it's presented to you when you're a child, and that's the world. And so part of my world was that. And tenets of it are common to almost all forms of Protestantism. Uh, the absolute deity of Christ, but also at the same time, absolute humanity, which we can talk about if you want to. We will in a little bit, I think, because the humanity side it gets short shrift, although it's although in, in many Christian circles currently in the past few years it's been gaining additional uh, attention. Mm. But the absolute deity of Christ, um, the absolute authority and inerrancy, and for the most part literal reading of the Bible, and it is of course the Protestant Bible. You know those sixty six books, thirty nine in the Old Testament, right. twenty seven in the New Testament. We don't have the, the full number that's in the Catholic Bible, right? Or right. The Eastern Bible. Those would be um, considered apocryphal. Those would be, yes. And uh, you have uh, the really, really foregrounded thing in evangelical Christianity, which, again, this is part of most Orthodox Christianities, but evangelicalism is really hard on it. The urgent necessity of a personal appropriation, a personal rebirth, a personal confession and experience of being born again and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, most forms of what's known as mainstream Christianity would embrace that, but you don't get Catholics really talking all about their right. personal. You don't, you don't have someone in, in Catholic circles, if they're trying to talk theology or religion with someone who's not one of them, they don't tend to have this need within them where they come up saying, have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? <laughs> right. Everyone knows that line, you know, and it's 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 just so hackneyed for some people. It's easy to parody. I remember that movie, Box of Moonlight, that has the scene where, um, oh, who's the actor? Can't say his name. You know, Barton Fink, the actor who started Barton Fink. He's uh, he's asked by somebody at one point. He's thinking they're really concerned about him, kind of being in a depression. And then one of them says, "I have a question for you." He says, "What?" And they say. Have you found Jesus? <laughs> and it's like a needle scratching off the record, you know. And he just looks at him and says, "Why is he missing?" <laughs> yeah. So everyone knows like that. Have you have you met Jesus Christ? You know, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That is the the tradition that I was raised in, mm. and I, I I absorbed the music. I started playing piano at age eight. It's been a hugely important thing making music my oh, whole nice. life, classical and all that. 
And I played the music in church, and I took my religion very seriously, and I read my Bible, and I prayed, and so I wasn't just a, a churchgoer because I was told to. Got old enough, started to question it, and uh, branched out. But we have a we have a similarity. It's just the, the Campbell Stone tradition. You know, you, you mentioned that, Stone Campbell. I should point out that that was named after a couple of people who were most prominently associated with this restoration movement that came up as part of um, mostly the Second Great Awakening in American history, sure. where where there was a, a feeling afoot among some Christians, and they had certain figureheads who were raised up, including the men named Stone and Campbell, that um, Christianity had become corrupt. It was almost like a second reformation mm. within within Protestantism, where the idea was that lots of what's done in terms of church practice and also theological terms and terminology and demanding allegiance to certain beliefs is wrong. What we need to do is restore the pure, real church, which was conceived as the first century church as described in the book of Acts in the first generation of Christians. So the church tradition that I grew up in. Kind of like a primitivism? Yes, definitely. Definitely. And, and, of course, then what's what's interesting is that they, it's called the Christian Church because and, and the disciples of Christ are called the disciples of Christ because these were terms that they were they attempted to come up with that could be generic and and start this movement and encompass everyone. We're just Christians. We're not Roman Catholics. We're not Presbyterians. We're not Reformed. We're not Calvinists. We're just Christians. But as you know, right, Christian Church is its own denomination. That's the fate it seems of Protestantism, which has completely fulfilled. The warnings of the Roman Catholic Church that it would be endless splintering. Yeah, I remember that. That just makes me think of. I, I had a professor in seminary that taught uh, New Testament and the early church, and he would always say, you know, at one level the church is irreducibly complex. That you know, from the very beginning there was this plurality to it, and so to kind of try to nail it down to one denomination or one strand, you know kind of does it a disservice that's actually uh, been um kind of bordering on heretical thinking that has become mainstream among biblical scholars in the past 100 and 150 years it's one of the things that defines uh modern uh, higher education scholarship modern, modern professorial and professional scholarship of early christianity is overturning the idea that for example roman catholics uh, most forcefully put forth that that church is the exact continuation of a line of apostolic authority that, that came from Jesus's commission to Peter, yeah. right? That they represent against all these heterodox and heretical uh, forms of Christianity, the real truth. Mm-hmm. The modern discovery, so to speak, or reframing has been exactly what you said. No. Early Christianity in the first century even during the time Jesus was alive, they say you can see it in, in Scripture to whatever extent it's historical, different understandings of him going on. You can see the struggles in Acts. You can see it in history in the second, third centuries. Now, there, were a pl- there was a plurality of viewpoints, and what eventually emerged uh, as maybe mainstream was actually an act of you know, history being written by the winners. They yeah. retroactively oh, we were the, the true stream all along. It's interesting how that tends to happen. <laughs> yeah. So— Going back to this sort of theological claim in, I think, a lot of Orthodox Christianity, that there's a metaphysical divide between the divine and the created. What would Alan Watts, what would non-dual Christianity sort of 
say to that? How would mm-hmm. it begin to unpack that? Yep. Um, just as an initial note, uh, non-dual Christianity, it might be something different than what than the project that Watts pursues in the book, although that eventually ends up being non-dual Christianity. It's interesting what he does. I know we'll talk further about what he does in, in this book. Sure. Um, but uh, the creator-creature distinction in, in, again, to repeat, what has become known as orthodoxy, as, as mainstream right. Christianity, you know, Holds, exa- holds the idea exa- that's exactly what we said, that there is God, and God is a metaphysically transcendent being, a personal being, who created uh, the universe and uh, creates stars, galaxies, planets, nebulae, uh, us, right, animals, everything, uh as uh, and they, it's understood, this not, it's not naive in in lots of your best instances of Orthodox Christianity. Um, that creates us as a, as like a, an artisan would create something, like an artist creating a pot separate from him or herself, right? Right. And that's not, it's, it's recognized as just a metaphor by 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 intelligent Christians. They understand that that this is metaphorical language that you have to use when you invoke spirit. But still, they say that the metaphor refers to something real. There is a hard distinction. You and I are not God. God is not us. Not even on a deep level. We are creatures. We are created beings. And certainly, as C.S. Lewis said, our beingness, and you have to kind of get platonic and philosophical to even understand what's being meant when you add the suffix ness to the word being. Yeah, exactly. Comes from God's absolute being, but our being is partial. We are creatures. God is God. We are we. There's a dividing line. Jesus being the Christ, the anointed of God, is this bridge between us. And then we can talk further about that if you want. But uh, non-dualism, whether you're talking about Christian non-dualism or not, non-dualism is um, based on the, some would say proposition, I say recognition, that actually everything is one. There literally is nothing but one thing. And there may be myriad finite minds, uh, viewpoints like yours and mine and anyone else's and, and ants, or maybe the viewpoint of a planet, if you hold to the Gaia theory or something, sure. but that it's all just one. Ultimately, it really is just one. And ideas of ultimate distinction are false. There is just one, the one, capital O, little n-e. Now, when you put that in a Christian context, Christian non-duality, which still sounds like a either a heresy or just kind of an impossibility or a misnomer or something to some people. Right. What happens, you take, it depends, the force of it really at the beginning depends on the fact that most people find it to be a shocking to say it. They've got, quote, traditional Christianity in mind. You say this creature-creator distinction? No. It is not just a metaphor. It's something like an optical illusion. Mm. In fact, if you, go, if, if, you, if you go farthest inward into yourself, when you reach that level of your beingness, that's not separate from God's beingness. At our core, each of us actually is God. And so you get um, the famous line from Meister Eckhart, you know, the great medieval Christian mystic who was later, uh, whose works were after his death um, declared heretical right. by the Roman Catholic. You have that line that I think expresses within Christianity what would have to be the essence of Christian non-dualism. He says, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. Mm, that's beautiful. Add, my eye and God's eye are one eye, one seeing, one knowing, one love. 
Mm. And that's what the mystics have said for a long time. And it's almost invariably within the mystical branches of uh, religions like the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Um, it's almost always, pretty much always within their mystical minority eddies, currents, and offshoots that you find this non-dualism cropping up. Sure, sure. So, Matt, I have a question for you. I, I don't know if you'd agree with this claim, but, um, you know, I've, I've thought for a while that our theology, whether it's Christian or not, is often autobiographical or, or deeply informed by our sort of psychological story. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious if you could speak to why a more non-dual approach to Christianity, how you just articulate how, how that kind of fits who you are or who you've become in a way that maybe the, the orthodox sort of reading does not. Sure. Um, on the one hand, what I'm going to say sounds like it would be instantly open to uh, challenge and criticism from someone on the basis that it's pure subjectivism. Sure. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, uh, what I'm going to say to anyone who has the non-dual cast of mind and has kind of uh, undergone what you might call as the perceptual flip, mm. the reversal that is involved with non-dual seeing, uh, it's just it's just a statement of what is. It's just self-evident right. truth. Right. What happened to me was I found out that in order, and this is the common experience to a lot of people, my my inherited Christian uh, theology and my um, belief in the God of the, the, the literal objective transcendent God and my belief in uh, Jesus as the, you know, the one, the only son of God, the only bridge through which we can have access to and be saved by God. All of that became increasingly hard to believe and felt distanced from me. I actually had to uh, exert effort if I, if I wanted to hold on to that. Mm. And sometimes emotionally it would come over me and I would want to do that. But then the pillars would be knocked out when over the course of an hour or a day or a week or a month after I had sort of done this recommitting of myself to that, I'd see that this is an effort of will. This is not something that self-evidently presents itself as true. And uh, just as this current that that kind of washed through me over time, I I realized that anything that has to be believed through an effort of will. Anything, when you, when you come to uh, abstract, metaphysical, theological, philosophical matters, seems to me to be something that is suspect, mm. and ultimately something that is not true. And I spent years, years, in my journals and in my thinking, uh, trying to hit upon anything that I thought could actually be axiomatic, could be an axiom in terms of something that presents itself as self-evidently true, by which one could assess the truth status of other things. And when you get into that state, one direction lies complete nihilism, relativism, the idea that essentially uh, we're, we're living in an empty, vacuous existence where there's no anchor, there's no reference point for anything. I, I see or that the every other day end, in my office. With I'm my, sure with, you do. With many of my clients, You're, sure. Yeah, that's, I know that's a, a real cause for therapy for a lot of people, which I never, I never approached. I read a lot of... Uh, psychotherapy. Uh, I read a lot of the classic figures in it and even self-help books and so on, but it was more of a spiritual search for me. And uh, so for me, I ended up over time through, I was attracted to Alan Watts, like I said, and Houston Smith, whom I mentioned, and uh, 
books on Zen, Shunru Suzuki's um, Zen mind, beginner's mind, other things, and um, began to first read about and then recognize, even when I wasn't reading, that the only sure thing actually is the fact of my own presence. Mm. And that's where that just objectivism that a lot of people would say uh we would cry can we curse on the can we use traditional profanity on this show fuck yeah you can fuck yeah okay <laughs> a lot of people would cry bullshit thank you for introducing that so elegantly oh yeah sure uh, yeah bullshit that's that's your subjective experience uh you're just going on your yeah. feelings this isn't rooted in any kind of objective truth you're saying you're, you're saying your mind your perspective or your feelings or whatever is the ba- is the only thing that you're going to base uh, all of reality on man that's if, if people wanted to be philosophical and criticize it they'd say you're just going for for solipsism right you're just saying that only your own self-enclosed world is what exists and there actually is a danger of that however my contention and it's not just mine it's been said by people more able than i is that if you continuously call yourself on your own bullshit as you are recognizing the only undeniable thing that you've ever known the only undeniable thing you've ever experienced, the only undeniable thing that you ever could possibly know, that you the only thing you know undeniably right now, the fact that you are present and knowing. Mm. You know, the fact that you're actually here to observe these thoughts and feelings that you're having and this uh, this, uh, this the sensorium of all of your, your sense perceptions around you, you know. Right now, I'm looking at this screen, you're on the screen, I'm hearing my voice, I'm seeing these thoughts form. That's all changing, that's all changing. The only anchor, the only enduring thing is my knowledge of as, as the presence you know like the the background mm. out of which i'm watching all this unfold well that right there uh if you get to that point of recognizing that and then you read some other people who are saying you know what and they're making connections between this and recognizing that your being is the ground of being which is another name for god and that's what you're seeing from well i think then the the shoe drops mm. you know and uh, at drops or the penny drops, we tend to say, and uh, suddenly a person goes, ah, uh, the distance is collapsed. And all of these things that I've been reading, people saying, making claims about metaphysical non-duality and so on and so forth, it just makes sense. So for me, I recognize Christian, traditional mainstream Christian theology as largely not a Freudian thing, not not his huge uh, critique of religion and Moses and monotheism and, sure. and whatnot. But still largely a game of, of uh, mythological projection. However, within it, within the myth, within the metaphors, if you read them right, which is what Watts tries to do, um, you go, ah, it's just an encoded version of exactly what I was saying. There's no distance. There's no distinction between you and what, for lack of a better word, is God. Yeah. So, Matt, you know, I'm, I'm imagining a potential critic, you know, from my past or, or someone that I associate with now who would be more in the Orthodox Christian mold, who would would be nervous with some of our thoughts because they might assume that to claim at a metaphysical level that we are, you know, the same thing as God, that that would lead to some type of, you know, inflated ego or would lead to a, a superiority complex, you know, would, would maybe lead to some bad yep. behavior. How, how do you sort of begin to think about that possible objection? They are, are completely right. And it has happened to many people. Mm. They're right. And it's 
many people and it's still happening to many people and it will always continue to happen to many people. On the one hand, a person I think can have a genuine insight and then fall off the horse and get that ego inflation. Mm. On the other hand, there can be people who never really got it and they just read a bunch of stuff, you know, heard a bunch of people talk and took it the wrong way. Yes. If you take it the wrong way and it's easy, easy to do, it can be subtle. Uh, you think that what's being said is I am God and you forget that that means there is this absolute contentless container, this absolute mm. non-conceptual uh, seat of being, which is aware, in which all these things are happening, including the phenomenon that is you as this individual body-mind. Mm. You forget that. And you start to think that I, and as this individual body mind, am God. Of course, you can also say, well, how can everyone be God? You know, that doesn't make sense. Not everyone is omnipotent and omniscient. And in fact, no one is. You're going down the wrong path again. You're right on that level. People aren't. But the point is, the point of the realization is it's like it's like the only tautology that's worth talking about. You know, when people say something tautological is just a non-starter because right. you're just saying the same nothing. thing. You're just saying the same thing. It's it's like this truth is the only tautology that is really worth attending to, or the only the only self-evident thing. Like I said, uh, and this is where, by the way, you can see how the creature-creator distinction actually encodes something that's real. You are you, Kike, as the the body mind that has the unique set of memories and history and the unique perspective from which you're looking at me through this screen right now. And I am I, Matt Carden. Same thing. And at the same time. Uh, this non-dual understanding would say we are both the absolute, but mm. that doesn't mean that each of us as this ego is God is the absolute. No, ego is ego. God is God. The, the way it's helpful to put it is to say when if, if, you, if someone has a real spiritual awakening, that doesn't mean that they wake up. It means that God wakes up from the dream of being them. Mm. It's possible for you or me to have a spiritual awakening. That would imply that the ego self, this individual body-mind, would wake up and suddenly know something new. That is simply more of the same illusion of separateness. There doesn't have to be that kind of awakening. This is why uh, lots of times uh, Advaita Vedanta and other forms of Hinduism have used the metaphor of a dream to talk about. We know what it's like when you're dreaming, right? When you wake up from a dream, you don't as the character. The character you were in the dream doesn't wake up. You wake up, right? And you recognize that was a dream. That's, again, it's just a metaphor. It can't actually be stated in words, because if you can say it in words, it's projected into that external objective realm that isn't it. Mm. It's part of conceptual thought. It's not you waking up or me waking up. It is God waking up from you and me as God. But that doesn't mean that the experience of you and me as a dream stops. Ultimately, we're still here. Can you see how that does uh, sidesteps the possibility of ego inflation? Yeah, absolutely. No, really well said. I, I appreciate your comments on that. You know, as, as you were talking, one of the things that came up for me was kind of one of the pillars of Orthodox Christianity that kind of crumbled that, you know, for me and eventually led to some, some deconstruction and exploration and other kind of ways of being and thinking about the world was a dissatisfaction with kind of the, the doctrine of revelation, special revelation, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, this historical book was you know, equated with the authoritative word of God. And mm-hmm. maybe you can reflect on that and, and your thoughts on that. But but one of the things the book Beyond Theology brought up for me was just the importance of kind of a direct experience of oneself, of the divine, of reality. 
and and I don't know if there's a place for revelation in in this sort of framework, but I I kind of like the idea of like almost an inner revelation, which again will sound very weird to some people, but uh, I was hoping maybe you could say a couple things about what that brings up for you. Yep. Um, there's three or four things that come to mind. I'll see if I can line them out. Um, I agree with you that the idea of revelation as given can be problematic. And again, when I started to have my my questions and doubts about my inherited religious tradition, I had some of the same thoughts as you, I think, uh, probably had. I, I wondered, now, now really, uh, especially with the way the scripture was framed as being absolute, authoritative, and inerrant, right. uh, really did God dictate a book, you know, and as you well know, there are different levels of sophistication and subtlety in the way different Christians and Christian traditions interpret Scripture. They're not all it, it, people who are who are Christians who still believe in the creature-creator distinction and are traditional, right? Mo- many, sure. most of them, actually most Christians in the world, all believe in fundamentalist literalism. So we need to be sure to remember that. Oh, yeah. Um, still, there's the idea that this book is special for most, you know, that this book is unlike any other book, right? right? And um, my— view is that there are people who are uh, who are inspired to some degree and maybe that inspiration includes uh, the creation of literary works you know um, it's it's incredibly difficult intellectually in fact it's impossible to to argue reasonably at all in favor of the fundamentalist literalist interpretation of scripture and basically a plenary inspiration as it's called you know the right. fact that it was actually Fully inspired, dictated word for word, that kind of thing, uh, and, and you get sort of its grossest um, reduction in the idea that basically God wrote a book, right? As if it were down on a golden platter, you know, and there it is, and uh, and uh, usually, and they're, they're even the ones who go so far as to say, and the only real one in English is the King James, right? You know, just because hung up on that, um, but there is inspiration that happens. The word inspire mm. means breathed right it's and and the word spire is is of course the same root word as spirit there is being breathed into by spirit and things come out and you write and as far as special revelation that doctrine as you know means there are certain things that could never have been known Mm. other than by god revealing them there is uh there is what you might call uh natural revelation or even natural knowledge and special revelation right and natural revelation in this Christian distinction, this ancient Christian distinction, is that there are things we can figure out and really know about life in the world. There may be even theological things we can figure out and know on our own, from logic, from being well-trained in philosophy, from thinking right, and so on and so forth. But there are things like the absolute deity of Christ and certain aspects of God's, like, like the Trinity, and so on and so forth, that just absolutely had to be said, right. had to be told to outside space-time. Um it's weird because I see this mirror image running down the middle of the whole thing. On the one hand, I want to say, yeah, because the, the, the non-dual understanding of deity says it is, as I said, absolutely. It's not anything you can see, hear, feel, taste, touch, smell. It's not you, me, but it is. Mm. It's the deepest self of everything. This is a projection that we're seeing, you know? So you can say, yeah, I can see the idea that there'd be something that comes flooding in from that. And then we say it, but it's in this view though, from the non-dual standpoint, it would be, as soon as you say it or write it down, it's caught in the the flux of relativity, mm. right? It's not absolutely – it's just one possible expression of an infinite number of possible expressions of it. The idea of special revelation and the way it's usually taken on the other side is this 
frozen fixed form of the way it said actually holds uh, holds full significance and is true for all people regardless. And that's where you get the great religious controversies of people saying, my scripture is true, your scripture is not. Mm. Or the even more abstracted one, no, my interpretation of this scripture is true and yours is not. So I don't know if I'm addressing your question, but that's kind of some of the thoughts it leads me to. Yeah, no, I really like it. Um, I have kind of another thing that just kind of popped up that, that I'd love to kind of have your your thought on is I know for me, sort of the theodicy question, you know, how, how a good God and a God that is allegedly in control of all things, how, how that can be the case in the type of world that we live in with some of the atrocities and the evils. I know that is something that also kind of broke down my faith and the, the faith of so many people that I end up interacting with in therapy. You know, Alan Watts in Beyond Theology kind of gets into some of that. I was hoping you could speak to how a non-dual approach thinks about some of right. those questions. Um, yet one has to tread lightly when talking about this, because if you if you say the non-dual approach in the wrong way, it sounds like the most callous thing in the mm. world. And there are people who have used it. And, and I, I should point out that I don't consider myself to be someone who's had this full non-dual awakening realization, whatever you want to call it. It's just that it's reached a peak of, of both intellectual understanding and uh, increasing felt understanding with me okay. that, I, that I think, wow, I, I, I understand this more than I ever did. You know, wow. maybe, well maybe said. that's it. Thank you. Um, on one, one, people who do it wrong can say, and I actually was reading this in a book recently. There's, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a non-dual teacher or former teacher named John Wheeler, Mm. Not the not the physicist John Wheeler, but he's sure. a, actually I guess in, in his day job he's a like a, a technical writer in Silicon Valley, but he had quite a following in the early aughts and uh, wrote several books, and 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 they generally do like many of these books in a non dual vein do they take the form of a, a sort of a satsang a question and mm. answer between people who would ask him questions and then they would elicit different answers from him, and one of them said they had been hearing or reading a non dual teacher who was saying there are no moral distinctions mm. from. The, Point of view that basically, from the point of view of the one self, um, everything is wonderful. Even I guess this person said that this teacher was asked, was pressed, and this teacher said, um, "Children being tortured is this from the non-dual absolute viewpoint. It's all wonderful. It's all just stuff. It's all being consciousness bliss." And Wheeler, who was being asked about this, said, uh, "That is deranged in any." in any, you know, normal or acceptable uh, system or understanding of morality and ethics sure. in the world in which we live. Say that the absolute is the absolute and that all of this that we're seeing, including, importantly, yourself from the inside. always have to keep bringing that back. Yes. Your own self-projection. Um, to, to say that, um, that it's all just like a movie, so to speak, projected on the the screen of consciousness, you know, or maybe consciousness is the projector yeah. um, is not, not the same as saying that therefore none of it matters because it is true. And again, it all becomes a metaphor because you can't say absolutely true things about this one uh, that traditional, traditional qualities that are ascribed to God, such as compassion you know, such as loving kindness, such as the desire for the well-being of all beings, that kind of thing, 
uh, still hold true. It's just they're not these dogmatic, objective statements like with special revealed truth like we were talking about, right? Mm. So that somebody who is coming from this understanding is not going to go out and just flagrantly say, hey, it doesn't matter what I do because none of this is real, you know, and I'm God at deepest level, so who cares, you know? God is the one who, the traditional problem of theodicy, as you know, is that if we say God is all good, all powerful, all knowing, and all present, that seems impossible to reconcile with all the uh, suffering and pain that you see in the world. Right. Because either, because God, if God, it seems like God couldn't be all good or he wouldn't allow that. Or if he's all good, he couldn't be all powerful because, you know, then he would be able to stop that. And mm. you go through, go through the checkoffs of how it can't be true. Sure. Uh, the idea is that all of this is being experienced and suffered by God. And as to why it is this way, there's no answer to that question. You can't come up with a, you can't come up with a specific answer that would be definitive, the kind of thing that people who are seeking want. The, the only answer is to say, become true to your own experience. Look for the one thing that you cannot ever deny because your very attempt to deny it requires prior to that its assertion. Mm. The very denying of it, perfect. your presence, your knowing, aware presence, and go from there. It's like the question of why there's so much pain and suffering um, becomes more a question of who am I who is seeing it. Mm. If you have to be one of the ones suffering, who am I who is experiencing it? Uh, see how that it, it's it's almost as if it sidesteps, but it's not exactly a sidestep. Sure, sure. It's a it's it's a digging into the questioner who's asking the question, and you say, if you think you're the one suffering, for example, actually that's a dream from which you can awaken. Mm. But within the dream, once you realize that, reestablish that connection, so to speak, the view is compassion from there outward. So there have been, you know, accounts of people who were sages and masters and so on. On the one hand, they say things you make you think, oh, the world's a dream. What's, what does it matter? On the other hand, there they are regularly um, giving food to homeless people, you know, mm. and compassionately helping others. It's, right. uh, it's difficult to say in words, but that's the way it comes out. Okay. Yeah. No, thank you. So as you were talking and as I was kind of reflecting on you know, the book and, and some of these ideas, you know, one of the things that came up for me as I as I read it was conversations that I have on a daily basis with young adult men around what I would call the dominant metaphysical framework of our time, which is like materialism yeah. or, or kind of scientific naturalism. Yeah. And at various points, it seems that Alan Watts sort of, you know, addresses that as as another type of error and so, you know, with your more non-dual approach, your, your interaction with, you know, young people these days in the, the university setting, do you have any thoughts on that? What kind of that brings up for you? Well, yeah, the term, um, I think the term that most effectively expresses it for me is, uh, although this is distinct from scientific materialism as such, is scientism. Oh, yeah. Term you may- yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was useful to me. I had already been thinking and thought I was recognizing uh, scientism before I had that word to use. So a few years ago, I encountered the word, read what it meant, and thought, yes, exactly, like 20 years ago. Seems, seems recent. <laughs> uh, scientism is, is the, the, the term that's used to um, observe that there is a cast of mind. There, there's, there's an approach, usually unacknowledged by those who hold it, that thinks that 
everything, all of life, all phenomena, all experience are only really, truly understandable in terms of physical science, in terms of all that has all that has arisen as this um, reigning cultural assumption, which in some ways has been breaking down mm. the past few years, that um, the world is a is a is a a swirl of matter and energy, the scientific materialism that you referred to, the idea that human psychological processes can all be understood as uh, ultimately being reducible to biochemical, biophysical processes, neurology, hormones, that kind of thing. Right. The idea that if you want to understand, let's say you're watching a nature show on television uh, and you're enjoying watching the big cats that are being shown on the savanna, you know, in Africa. Which I do all the time. Uh, really, I love that stuff. Me too. If you get right down to it, really what's going on there is just a dance of matter and energy. And at the, and at the level of, of animal life, of biological, of complex biological life that those cats represent, it's really all your Darwinian struggle for survival. Scientism is the idea that foregrounds this notion that uh, everything is only understandable in reductionist terms to materialism with its various offshoots, which would be uh, determinism, which would be uh, as I say, the fight for survival, you know, nature red in tooth and claw, as right. the famous poetic line. And, and uh, so the people who come in who are kind of, to your practice, who are caught up in that kind of thing, I think there is a genuine suffering. It's a genuine dead end to mm. be caught in scientism. Again, scientific materialism as such is separate from scientism. But I think the problem, at least it has been in my experience, I can ultimately only speak from my experience, sure. is that it leads to this... Uh, dead end of despair because you have this sense that all of what you would consider to be your really finer emotions and all the things you really innately want and any hopes you have for your life or for people that you love uh, any sense of meaning and whatever you go well it's just it's just a projection it's just an illusion what's really real is this base brute level of matter and energy which expresses itself in what is unfortunately this bloody biological life and history in which we find ourselves. And I think that is definitely a suffering filled view. And it's one I went through for many years, which was weird because I also still was had aspects of my Christianity in there. So the, mm. you know, I'm a Christian by the way, but not a, not a literalist one like I was. Sure. But when you have those butting against each other, that is, that is sad. And, and one of the, the way out, uh, one way out is to recognize that it's not written in the sky. It's not given in the world that this philosophical interpretation of things is what it is. And that's the trick mm. to recognize that an interpretation being placed on things. Science is just a way to uh, physical science, you know, the scientific tradition coming from the 16th and 17th centuries is, is something is a way to understand um, how certain physical processes work, you know, causes and effects and, and the systems of nature and this and that. And it can tell it, it's fascinating, mm. but Scientific materialism and scientism and so on, those are philosophical assumptions. No one has ever proved, no one could prove, it's not something that is subject to proof that everything is only understandable in terms of physical causes. That gets into philosophy, and that yeah. unrecognized was the essence of 19th century Victorian scientism, and we've inherited that hangover, uh, has, has, in, has infected and affected all of us. And when you recognize that 
This is you reading it into things. You've got this screen of presuppositions behind your thoughts and emotions that you need to dig into and recognize. It's very liberating. And then when you hear other people who are trying to have conversations with you and argue to you, you oh, well, you're just saying these things because of certain, you know, certain Freud. They wouldn't talk in terms of Freud. That's outmoded, right? But certain Freudian thing, uh, you're like, wow, um, reductionist much? Yeah. You're, You're philosophy and you're not even acknowledging it where are you where are you getting that it's because you're programmed to think that mm. reality itself is is unbounded not subject to these all totalizing interpretations mm. you know that is one of the things that that i'll say sometimes some people will will maybe jokingly criticize me my, my clients will mess with me because they know i like to go deep and talk about metaphysics and they're like you know why the fuck are you even thinking about stuff none of that matters and i always kind of respond with you know everybody has a metaphysic everyone has a, a worldview or a kind of a framework that they interpret things by it's just often tacit and unreflected on that's it exactly. A few years ago, Neil deGrasse Tyson made a made a some waves when he uh, he was on, on a podcast and he they had a conversation about philosophy briefly, mm. and it was really critical of philosophy. And the two hosts were kind of laughing and saying, "You know, you get people come out of a college philosophy class and then they want to like stop the world. No, we can't do this scientific investigation, or we can't do this thing in the business world because we're too hung up on arguing about like I think one of them said." You try to imagine measuring something and getting hung up on the idea of philosophically um, trying to figure out what is an inch, mm. really. What is an? Inch? And Tyson kind of laughed with him and said, "Oh, I know the philosophy thing. It's just so people just kind of try to ask too many questions and bog us down." And he said, "And he said when, when what they're doing is distracting from the really important work that we're trying to doing of advancing scientific knowledge." At my blog, the Teeming Brain, I wrote kind of a hot take. On it, and I saw a lot of other people who were responding to that, saying, "Dude, I thought you were smarter than that." You know, I don't <laughs> right. know about the, but you're slamming philosophy, and then and then you turn to saying that it's impeded people who just get hung up in too much useless, reflective philosophical thinking are hindering us from getting on with the really important things. Important things according to what value framework? Right. Where are you getting those assumptions? How are you dividing that out? That's philosophy. You can't get away from it. Um, so yeah, that's that's a foot even among. Even among people who are considered to be leading intellectuals, or I guess mm. I don't know if he's a leading intellectual or a frame that way. He's certainly an interesting scientist and science popularizer, but it does affect just regular people sure. like you and me and your client. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I I wonder if if we could reflect a little bit more on, and I'm kind of struggling how exactly to to ask this the kind of practical or maybe in light of this podcast, the kind of therapeutic potential benefits of embracing more of a non-dual approach to things. Do, do you have any kind of Let thoughts me, on that? Sure. And and actually, um, I think it might be interesting to go back to uh, Watts' book specifically. Please. Let me point out what 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 is the overall arc of the thing, not chapter by chapter, but where he goes with it. Sure. And And – see what he found out he he um as i said at the start he thought he says in the introduction that he realized it would be interesting to read christianity in light of hinduism he calls it the chinese box yeah approach, like that metaphor you, you look at one uh, thought uh, system of thought enclosed within another like a box within a box and he points out that um you know christians uh christianity historically reinterpreted judaism out of which it arose in the same way. It, and then Islam reinterpreted Christianity and Judaism. It happens all the time, you right. know. 
he said, let's do an East-West crossover. And uh, he said, um, in my former books, he said, uh, I had actually done something uh, presented in three, three previous books, what was essentially an, uh, an explanation of what's been called the perennial tradition, which I mentioned at the start of our conversation here. And um, that's the idea that all of the great religious traditions, especially in their mystical aspects, are, are highly developed expressions of the same thing. And Watts said, I think in my earlier assessment, I was too hasty and didn't um, take into account the aspect of Christianity, which has really been intrinsic and ineradicable in, in mainstream Christianity, its aspect of exclusivity, mm. of remember he calls it orneriness, right. of, of, uh, of being all prickly and being an insistent on saying, no, this Jesus Christ was uh, of singular importance in all of history. Um, and he was saying that, that it seems false to say that anywhere has what has come down as mainstream Christianity ever understood itself to be just one tradition among many, whereas many other traditions have. I think that might be a conversation and an argument to be had. And I think maybe I, I think maybe he was a little more accurate in some of his earlier books, but it lead, but this approach leads him to that interesting thought experiment when he, where he says, look, let's take Christianity as exclusive as, as most Christians have always wanted to do. Say, what becomes of that when you place it within the Hindu Advaita Vedanta box? And of course, Advaita Vedanta is like the ultimate original non-dual philosophy in terms of history, globally significant religions, the great religious and spiritual traditions. And what he sees is... Um, as he lays out over the course of the book, that what you get with the way Christianity uh, develops its theology of exclusivism and also the the type of emotional and intellectual caste, the person that it creates, both in individuals and as uh, the Christian civilizations, is one that actually really for real views itself as an independent ego, mm. cut off from the universe, that this distinction, not just between, it's not just between the creator and the creature's it's between each of us as individual people and the whole rest of the creation, right? Brief sidebar, it was um, D.T. Suzuki, the, the famous um, and renowned uh, Zen philosopher and writer from the mid-20th century, whom Watts knew. You know, D.T. Suzuki's uh, book on uh, one of his early books on Zen and Watts's book, The Way of Zen, are like the two standard books that many people have read to introduce yeah. them to it. Suzuki once said at, at a world a conference, World Parliament of Religions, in relation to the Western Abrahamic religions, he said, he said, man against God, God against man, man against nature, nature against man, nature against God, God against nature. Mm. He was basically laying out what he viewed as what, what much of Christianity asserts, you know, the, the literalist kind. And then and he, I guess, according to Joseph Campbell, just kind of shook his head and he said, very funny religion. <laughs> so that's, that's the kind of situation that Watts is, is playing out, is envisioning. He says, if you really take this Christian view, uh, you have a, an independent nature created and it's material. And you have an independent uh, human self created. And you end up with that, both nature and human separate from God. They're, they are artifacts. They are created by a creator. They are not the creator. And then you have, even within the human self-perception, you have the, the Cartesian mind-body problem, right? Mm. You know yourself as an awake subjectivity, 
as a mind or as a soul, and yet you see that you're ensconced in this flesh bag, you know, in this machine, and you feel alienated from everything. You feel alienated from God. You feel alienated from non-human nature. You feel alienated from your body. Mm. And uh, it's this increasing chopping down to the point of where you have uh, you have just total isolation. Mm. And now, lots of Christians would say that's not what happens. You know, that's not that's not how I experience things. I know that in my own uh, experience. I was struggling with this very sense of alienation that Watts talks about, and not just because of my religious beliefs, but I think that was the seedbed of it. So to get back to what you're talking about, he says if you want to view, if you want to look at all this in the in the context of Hinduism, you say that uh, in Advaita Vedanta, the idea is the one self uh, plays this game with itself, almost of hide and seek. Mm. It creates the dream, Maya. And you have it, it sort of differentiates itself into all these finite perspectives. It's almost like a matrix. Yeah. Right? Like, and uh, it eventually loses itself, thinking it really is this part it's playing. Actually, it's dreaming all the parts at once. And these parts are believing that they're all separate too. Mm. But then when any one of them wakes up, it wakes up as the one self in Advaita Vedanta is called Brahman, right? What says, well, you could look at Christianity as being like the ultimate version of this game <clears throat> because of, he does, I don't think he mentioned Suzuki, but because of that, that thing that Suzuki mentioned, if you, if you, he wants to, Watts wants to say, if you chase down Christianity, mainstream historical Orthodox Christianity to where it ends up, it is that everything against everything with your poor little isolated consciousness, just watching all of this and saying, it's a giant game of everything against everything. And I can't really know God you have the theology of Jesus being the bridge, but it doesn't work so well, you know, right. because you're still set. And um, eventually it explodes. He said mm-hmm. it's like it gives you the absolute utter far end of feeling trapped in this role you're playing and forgetting that it's a role. So he th- he wants to say that it's actually a really special thing. And, and it's interesting to read it that way as, as the ultimate expression of how far Brahman can go mm. in playing another role now. You asked the practical question of what can, how does any of this relate maybe to people? And, um, and, 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 and no, that, wow, man, I just, I just love hearing you talk. Uh, it's, it's so good. As, as you were, as you were talking and I was thinking about the question I asked, maybe one that's even more refined, you know, cause one of the perspectives of this podcast and my work is, is, you know, exploring issues around masculinity and what it means to be a modern guy and, you know, one of the things that comes up for me, and maybe you can reflect on this or give me your reaction, is the sort of uh, dualistic or, or maybe orthodox kind of Christian metaphysic, I think if you look at it, can breed a type of competition, you know, man yes. versus God, you know, man right. versus like, man, man versus nature, just like Suzuki was was talking about. And uh, gosh, that's just one of the therapeutic issues that I end up having to kind of unravel and, and process with so many men is how an inherent competition has, has really kind of fucked them up and, and disturbed them on many levels. And so I, I wonder what that kind of brings up for you. Well, for me, it brings up the idea that on the one hand that, that there is the, the deep recognition whenever it happens that the competition is false. Mm. It's an, you're not competing with anyone. Mm. That person over there yourself. You're a dream self dreaming that other self. Only your only your small self is not dreaming that self. You're both being dreamed by the one mind, by the one yeah. self, you know? And the other thing is, 
uh, it is useless and counterproductive to fight against that feeling of competition, to, to try and subdue or not feel or pretend that you don't feel any of these things that you're feeling. That goes right back to Watts. He, he would say that one thing to do if you find yourself in this place, and he paints that neat picture of it by talking about it with, in terms of the Christian isolation of the ego and the creator from the creation, all that. But it applies also in what you're talking about right now, just in, even in a, on a mundane level, Sure, right? You feel that sense of separation and you feel yourself intimidated or threatened, or you feel yourself helplessly, even when you don't want to be in competition with, with whomever, with whatever. Just notice it. Mm. Just let it. The feeling is just a feeling. And even the fact that you hear somebody like me saying it's just a feeling, even if that appeals to you, and you take that and through effort, try and self-consciously apply it to the situation so that you don't feel it anymore, Mm. aggravating the situation further. There is nothing wrong. One can put a period after the sentence right there. There is nothing wrong. You can also expand it and say, there's nothing wrong with feeling like you're trapped in competition or maybe even in a sense of competition, and you recognize it's just a sense that you don't want to be in. Mm. Uh, it just is what it is. And in fact, everything is ultimately fine. Every, In fact, the fact that you feel bad is ultimately fine. Mm. How, many, how, many, how many layers deep does that go? How about this? Okay, someone hears this and they say, that's cool. And then they think I'm going to apply it. And they say, yeah, the fact that I feel bad is fine. But then they feel bad because they don't feel like they've actually really gotten it and they still feel bad. You know, the fact that you feel bad about not being able to not feel bad about feeling bad is perfectly fine. There is nothing wrong. Uh, It's all to use a term we haven't invoked yet. It's all karmic waves. Karma is a hackneyed term overused, but what karma means, and it's largely the same thing uh, uh, if you read it on the right level is what the term sin means. Mm. In some of its use, scripture and theologically, um, Christian scripture, it just means um, these waves that are rippling across the surface of a pond, and they're going to work out the way they're going to work out. And your feelings are what your feelings are. Even your thoughts are what your thoughts are. And you have the freedom to detach from them and watch them taking place. And there's something profoundly, deeply healing that takes place when you do that. And it's the same thing that the Apostle Paul talked about in one of his letters enshrined in the New Testament when he talked about the peace that passes or that transcends understanding. It's not a peace that happens when whatever was bothering you works out. It's the peace that's an undercurrent, even when things on the surface appear to just be full of pain. Mm. Wow. Would you mind if I read one of the passages near the end of the book that maybe gets into some of this, and then maybe you could kind of reflect a little bit more. Um, Alan Watts, I think in the penultimate page and then in the last page says that this thing we're talking about cannot be acquired or developed through perseverance and exercises, except insofar as such efforts prove the impossibility of acquiring it. Letting go comes only through desperation When you know that it is beyond you, beyond your powers of action as beyond your powers of relaxation, when you give up every last trick and device for getting it, including this quote unquote giving up, 
as something that you might do, say, at 10 o'clock at night, that you cannot Mm -hmm. by any means do it, that is it. That is the mighty self-abandonment which gives birth to the stars. Mm -hmm. What in the hell does he mean by that? That's foundational to his to to his understanding of things, and he says the same thing in in various ways mm. in various other books. You talk, you you saw him talking in the book about the double bind yes. of being a human. You know, the but basically it's like you you have this, uh, and, and he talks about the double bind in Christianity of saying you must love. Mm. Love is something that happens spontaneously if it happens at all. If you're told to do it, you can't do it self consciously. You can only mimic it. But you're stuck because you were told to do it. Right. You think it, you know, God, your rightness with God hinges on it. The idea that you should do anything puts you in that double bind. And as he points out, you're stuck with yourself. And he, you, know, you, you read all about abandonment. That's that you, you read him talking about that. You, sure. read, you read him or in, saying, um, let go of yourself. Uh, or if you're in the religious context, um, open yourself up to Jesus. You know, in, right. in the Christian religious context, and you find for the same reason that you can't love on command, is it impossible? Yourself is what you feel yourself to be stuck to, and it's easy enough to talk about what I was talking about, what we were talking about earlier, and saying that this ego self is a sort of a dream phenomenon. But then, if, but then, when you turn inward and try and let go of it, and and maybe let go of your trying not to feel pain mm. or, or, you know, let go of fighting against pain. Like I said, you find it's maybe more slippery, at least to you as ego, you, you keep going in circles. You're like the eye who's trying to do it is the eye that has the problem. So it's like the problem is always preceding. I can, it's chasing, it's lit. It's, it's, if you can say it's literally, but metaphorically chasing your tail. Yeah. That's what he's talking about. You can't let go of yourself because the attempt to let go of yourself is being performed by yourself and mm-hmm. reinforces your, uh, your ego self. And so that really, that's the, I'm glad you quoted that passage there. You read it because that's the far end of it is, is he's at the end of the book. That's why he brings that in. He says, you, you can read all this and think this all sounds good or any other any other spiritual book that talks about finding your deepest self. This is an interesting one by him because it finds it within the framework of an exclusivistic Christianity. Sure. But even then, it sounds good to you. You can't implement what it's talking about. This is where it shades back into um, what I said about traditional Christian teachings and theology actually having very good things in them. Mm. You just see them in a different way. The doctrine of grace. Grace means something being done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. Right. So if you really are uh, God, Brahman, beneath this uh, ego projection, you can't strive to be that. You can't strive to wake up as Brahman or God because you aren't in your ego self that. And effort is only ever being made by you as ego. All that can happen is you can... Be, be awakened. There's a there's a contemporary spiritual teacher writer named Bart Marshall who has a book titled "Becoming Vulnerable to Grace." Mm. It comes from uh, he was a student of Richard Rose, an American spiritual teacher who who was very interesting and powerful. You can find a lot of writings online by him and by Marshall, and that's exactly what his whole book is about. He says 
and he, he teaches uh, just like Rose, a non-dual form of spiritual understanding. Mm. And his his recommendations, as such, later in the book, are all about not being able to do any of this yourself. You're not going to be able to make yourself wake up. All you can do is do things that try to make you more vulnerable to, if you want to put it in these metaphorical terms again, having God choose to reach out with God's grace and do this for you. Mm. And it's interesting, the things that Marco comes up with, we were talking about morality earlier. Right. The point is that on the higher level, beyond just sentimentality, things like love, charity, patience, forbearance, generosity, these are things that loosen the hold of your ego. You can never, through them, get there. You can't get there by doing these things, but you can do to switch back to Zen again. That famous saying, um, you can make yourself more accident prone. Like There's this that. famous, I forget whether it was Paul Reps or Richard Baker or which one of the famous American Zen teachers is credited with it, but said, enlightenment, which is, of course, the equivalent of salvation, you know, in, in the Buddhism, enlightenment's an accident. Meditation just makes you more accident prone. Mm, that's really good. So, Matt, I know I know yeah. you have to go in just a minute. Um, can I ask you just one other question? And then maybe you could tell us where we can find you online. And, uh, man, I, I hope that you'll come back on the podcast because I feel like we just scratched the surface. Yeah. Um, my my, my question is, and, you know, in light of everything you just said so beautifully, could I ask – not that there's anything one can do ultimately to access this. If that, you know, I, I agree with you on that. But is there anything that you have engaged in in terms of a spiritual practice or, or just something devotional in terms of your own kind of self-care and self-exploration that has opened you up to some of this that you might kind of throw out there as an idea for someone? Spiritual reading, prayer, and meditation. Okay. And then in daily life, uh, actually, I talk about not making effort, but actually, I have made the effort, and 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 you can you can blow it by making a hard effort. I've yeah. made the gentle effort. I recommend okay. making a gentle effort. Gentle effort. To, I like uh, that. To on the one hand imbibe spiritual reading that seems to make sense to you, and follow whatever seems to be the the library daimon that is that is guiding you whatever really lights your fire you know you can read the bible you could read the bhagavad gita you could read alan watts there's lots of you could also lots of things you could read could read and, your and your blog yeah you could read oh you're not going to find as much this is i'm sort of talking more directly about these things i have had some posts about non-duality at the blog but lots of the blog you're going to find me talking about dystopian cultural trends and the horror fiction gotcha you know, so so that's uh you know, this is me more talking more openly about this stuff, which is really where I've been headed. This is where my my center of gravity is has been going. Good. Um, I'd say the spiritual reading and uh, actual prayer. You know, as Marshall, as Bart Marshall says, although we're talking about just the one being the one, non-duality, uh, until and in such until uh, and unless such time as that actually just comes over you, you know, and that kind of as, as it's sometimes called a conclusive spiritual answer mm. <laughs> comes to you. Uh, it's still valid to view in, in somewhat dualistic terms that there is this power or self that is quote unquote, keep the square quote separate from you. So prayer to it is, is a perfectly valid way of relating and the Lord's prayer and really digging deep into, you know, the, our father Catholics call it has been of great importance to me. There's that, that expresses everything about all of this. If you mm-hmm. really 
dig into it. And then um, writing, I think early morning writing or journaling can be good for, for some people. Uh, free writing, look up some things like Julia Cameron, who uh, the, the, the uh, you know, she has her series of books on her system called The Artist's Way. She's really good at, at pointing out uh, a system called writing morning pages where you free write three pages in the morning before your brain's fully woke up mm. and it puts you in touch with deeper aspects of yourself. And then the gentle thing in, in these books, whatever you're learning through your writing, whatever you're divining in meditation and prayer and so on in daily life, make that gentle effort to see other people in terms of it, be aware of yourself in terms of it, let it, uh, let yourself um, see your experience be transformed. And whenever you feel like, Oh, I didn't do it right. You know, I went a whole day and didn't think of it. I went a whole week and was just my old crappy reactive self. Right. No sweat. You're still here in the present. It's just a matter of it cultivates over time and you're not really getting anywhere. You're making yourself more porous, more accident prone. Hmm. Damn, that's good. Okay, so if someone wants to get a hold of you, they want to reach out to you online, where can they find you? Where can they find your work? I do have an author's site, mattcarden.com. Again, a lot of supernatural and weird horror fiction there. You know, my, my last book that just came out a couple of months ago is titled What the Demon Said, Essays on Horror Fiction, Film, and Philosophy. Toward the end of the book, uh, is a series of interviews with me, collecting interviews over the past many, many years, and I talk about some of this non-dual stuff. Uh, so mattcarden.com. I've blogged since 2006 at the Teeming Brain. It's just T-E-E-M-I-N-G brain.com. Mm. Not doing a lot of work there recently. I've been scouting for uh, some kind of new, speaking of inspiration, some kind of new authorial inspiration to take hold. And uh, we'll see what happens. My uh, my collected journals. I kept journals for the past 30 years. Those are coming out uh, uh, as published in two volumes. The first volume should be out, I don't know, three or four months, something like that. So they could kind of find, find read those if they want to see where I've been maybe on this history. Yeah. No, that would be awesome. Okay. So Matt, again, thank you for being willing to read the book with me, to come on the podcast and have this conversation. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I know it was meaningful for me and I think it'll help a lot of the listeners. Thanks, KK. I appreciate I appreciate the way you uh, conduct interviews. You know, you really I've heard you. I've listened to your other shows. You know, and you really you do a good job. I think of targeting key things and helping the conversation become valuable. So, thanks for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. Until next time.
Thank you again for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Let's try to connect. Reach out to me. You can go to my website at Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com or you can Google my name, Kike Autry on Google, and there you'll find my Facebook and Instagram accounts. If you would like to schedule an appointment, you can go to my website or you can go to the website of the practice that I serve at, Katie Teen and familycounseling.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Please share my content and remember, continue the conversation.